Good morning. How are you all doing? Good. I'm glad. My name is Marco. I have the privilege of serving as uh, the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. If you are new, uh, welcome. So glad that you are here, and I'm so glad to join you uh, in worship as we look at God's Word together. And so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and go to Jude uh, verses 11 through 16. Jude is the current sermon series that we find ourselves in. It's this little book, about 25 verses toward the end of the New Testament. Uh, It is right before Revelation. While you do that, I have just one or two things uh, to give you a heads up on. Uh, We're going to dive right into our time, but I want to caution you on a couple of things. As we look at verses 11 through 16, it's going to feel like a giant list of images and illustrations because Jude is ultimately rebuking the false teachers that he has been talking about that are inside of the church and he has been addressing them since verse 5. This large chunk of scripture is profoundly centered around illustrations uh, of the Old Testament. Um, So with that being said, I'm going to give you bits and pieces of where they are located in the Old Testament, but I'm not necessarily going to spend a lot of time uh, going back to the Old Testament because that would take a great deal of time. And so if you are taking notes, uh, just make sure that you are not so focused on taking notes that you miss out what Jude is ultimately uh, telling us or what God is saying through Jude this morning to us. It's not like it's going to be hard following along because again, this is a list of illustrations. And so should you get lost or if you need to revisit um, this text later on this week, not only can you listen to the sermon online, but you can just go back to Jude and see how he provides us once again with these illustrations. And so with that being said, I'd love to dive in if you're cool with that. I'd like to open up our time with a question. I often open up with questions, and so this is no different. Here's the question. How often do you think about integrity? I want you to chew on that for a second or two. How often do you think about integrity? The word integrity comes from the Latin word integer, which means wholeness. It means complete. It means one. When attributed to the character of a person, integrity means that their character, their virtue is one. It is whole. It is complete. That this individual who is someone of integrity does not wear a mask. They are not one way at home and then one way elsewhere. They do not double speak or nor are they double minded. They do not gossip or lead others astray. They are whole. 
complete one. The pages of Scripture are filled with individuals who, although they fall, are considered people of integrity, where in contrast, false teachers lack integrity. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this about false teachers, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. False followers or false teachers of Christ are not men and women of integrity. They are men and women who have the outward appearance of godliness, say eloquent things, subscribe to Christian morality, but inwardly are ungodly and far from God where their hearts are still spiritually dead hardened toward the person and redeeming work of Christ, deceptive toward the church from within the church. The Bible teaches that God exposes ungodly sinners and their decisions and their deception and their deeds. And this morning, while it is an unpopular topic, we must not dismiss the truth behind it. Yes, God is love. Yes, God is gracious and is merciful. And God is the judge. And God is a God of wrath. God, make no mistake about it, judges the ungodly. Yet there is hope in that statement. There is hope in that statement. So here is the main idea for our time. The same God who judges the ungodly is the same God who by his mercy saves the ungodly. Say that one more time. The same God who judges the ungodly is the same God who by his mercy saves the ungodly. And so what I'd like to do is read verses 11 through 16. I'm going to pray and then we'll, di- we'll dive right in to this text. Here we go. Beginning in verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless Clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. God, as we begin our time in your word, we begin by thanking you. Thanking you for your grace and mercy. Thanking you for your patience. God, our time concerns an unpopular topic in our culture. So would you not soften your word, but penetrate our hearts with your word through the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Opening up, Jude begins with a woe. It's in verse 11. This is important because we see throughout the pages of Scripture several woes, and I want you to take into account as to why he does this. Jude pronounces a woe over the false teachers who are, as a reminder, inside of the church. This woe is a cry for the way things have become for the state of sin that they are in. In other words, they would view their sin as normal. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces several woes to the religious leaders of the day, publicly rebuking them. A woe is a cry of anger or sadness or grief over the condition of something or someone. I would venture to say that Jude here is upset. He is upset because he unloads several descriptions of false teachers' ungodly character, and he begins by telling us that God judges the ungodly for their decisions. And in verse 11, as he opens with this woe, he goes on to say, for they walked in the way of Cain. We're gonna look at that word walked in just a moment. So if you're taking notes, highlighting or underlining, circle that word walked. In this section, the section where Jude teaches us that God judges the ungodly for their decisions, he begins to unpack several examples from the Old Testament, beginning with Cain. Once again, he writes, for they walked in the way of Cain. What did Cain do? In order to understand what Jude means, we must go back, not that we're going to do that right now, we're going to paraphrase it, but we must go back to Genesis 
4. When God rejected Cain's offering, Scripture says that Cain grew angry. And God asked him, Cain, why are you angry? That's an important question. Because in that moment, God did not rebuke Cain. Instead, he invites Cain to put his heart on the table to actually discuss what is going on in his heart, even providing Cain with the warning that if you do not deal with your anger, sin is crouching at the door. Cain rejected the invitation. Instead, he murdered his brother. And not only did, God, did Cain reject uh, God and his invitation, but his life was marked by anger, void of love, leading people astray. Some of you are very angry. And when you hold on to your anger, like Cain, you lead people astray. Your fruit is without love. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says, Cain is the opposite of godliness and faithfulness. When you hold on to your anger, You walk like Cain and take others with you. The kicker is you're not unaware of that. He goes on to say they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. This is in Numbers 22 Chapters 22 through 24 and chapter 31. Balaam was a prophet for pay who was hired by the king of Moab. And what he does is he, that is uh, Balaam, he leads Israel, God's chosen people. He leads them into sin. He leads them into immorality and idolatry. And he teaches the people of God that they could sin without consequence and without punishment. And he does all of this for financial gain. He is filled with greed. These false teachers lead for financial gain. They lead out of greed and they teach that sin is excusable. How many times, let's just say this week, have you put your sin off to the side. It's not that bad. It didn't hurt anyone. As long as we don't talk about it, it'll be okay. How many times did you minimize your sin or legitimize your sin or accept someone else's sin so that things wouldn't be addressed? You would be like Balaam. He continues, for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. This is found in Numbers 
16, Korah challenges and rebels against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, refusing their authority. They are careless toward the word of God. They are full of dissatisfaction, and it is rooted in arrogance and pride. And I think one of the reasons that Jude lists Korah last in this section is because their fate was so graphic in numbers. False teachers lead in rebellion toward what God has established. They lead people astray. They lead people, particularly the people of God, to their ruin. God judges the ungodly for their decisions. In the next section, God judges the ungodly for their deception. In this section of the ungodly, Jude provides six examples of deception from false teachers. Now, I mentioned a while ago to underline the word walked. Here's where we come back to it. The deception of these ungodly people, of these false teachers inside of the church, their deception is central to the word walked in verse 11. This means that their deception is not only based on their decisions, their deception is their lifestyle. It is not a one-time thing. It is not a my bad. It is a lifestyle of deception. Deception is when one teaches and leads others to accept something that is true when in fact it is false. Church, you must pay close attention to the Word of God. So let's walk through these illustrations beginning with the first. Here's what Jude says. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. You ever seen a coral reef? It's kind of hidden within the water. If boats aren't careful when they dock, I don't know what it's called, what you would call a boat, what they park, they anchor, I don't know, man, right? Reefs destroy the hull of boats if they're not careful These false teachers, what Jude is saying, they hide themselves within the people of God and they share meals alongside of them. They have the outward appearance of a brother or sister, but inwardly they are far from fellowship with God and the people of God. Their love feasts, it's either meals that are shared together as the family of God or specifically the Lord's Supper. Either way, these individuals are clothed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are wolves. He says that they are without fear. That means they know. They know what they are doing. 
He continues that they are shepherds feeding themselves. These teachers, these individuals are in positions of leadership where they are there for their own selfish ambition and gain. They feed themselves for prominent influence, for arrogance, for pride, rather than feeding and serving and protecting the flock that they have been entrusted with by the king. Jude pulls this illustration from Ezekiel 34, verse 8, where God says, As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep, that is his people, have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep elsewhere in this chapter, God goes on to say, I will deal with these shepherds. A shepherd feeds the flock a robust diet of the word of God. If a shepherd softens the gospel, does not pursue the sheep, does not care for the sheep, does not live among the sheep, he is no shepherd. He continues that they are waterless clouds swept along by winds that they have the appearance of life-giving substance. What do clouds contain? They have rain. That they have the appearance of life-giving substance. It looks like they have their stuff together. They went to seminary. They give generously. They listen to 96.9, and they even use the hashtag blessed on social media. But in reality, they are empty of life-giving substance. And because of that, they lack rain, they lack substance to bless others and for them themselves to grow or to see others grow. And because they are swept by the wind, because they are empty of this substance, they are useless. Is that they are waterless clouds, and he continues, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Their life produces no fruit. There is no fruit of conversion. There's no fruit in their character. There's no fruit in their integrity. Their life is void of Christ. And he says that they are twice dead. They are dead because of their lack of fruit in their life. And they are dead once again because they lack roots because their heart has not actually been transformed. Jesus says this as a continuation of Matthew 7, he writes, or he says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. He continues. That they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. The Bible teaches that the ocean is an image or illustration for chaos and sin. And when it comes to these false teachers, listen to uh, theologian Danny Aiken. Here's what he says, that they make a lot of noise with great swelling words. In other words, they are like waves of the sea. And so what do waves do? They crash, they make a lot of movement, they make a lot of sound. There's a lot of work happening. They make a lot of noise with great swelling words, but they do not have a life to back it up. There are false teachers that some of you can even identify because you've seen them on YouTube or TV or you have friends that even subscribe to their teaching. And here's the thing about false teachers. They don't have to have some sort of social media platform. They can be sitting right next to you at your missional community. And when it comes to these false teachers, what Jude is saying is that they make a lot of noise. They're not just the ones writing books and writing blogs and starting podcasts. They are the ones that make a lot of noise at your discipleship group, at the table when your mission community meets. They are the ones who are constantly making noise. Their life is void of fruit. And the only thing that they actually bring up to the shore in light of all of this noise, in light of all of this commotion, the only thing that actually comes up to the shore is their shame. That's what Jude says. Rick, Alina's calling. <laughs> when it comes to these false teachers, when it comes to these false teachers, the people of God eat them up. When it comes to these false teachers, the people of God eat them up because they make a lot of noise, they make a lot of sound, they say some good things, some quotable things, even because they have their Bibles open. Finally, he says that they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved Forever, forever, that rather than being set upon the course God has placed them, they are off course and headed toward their destruction. This, these six illustrations, this is the lifestyle of such teachers. And because they exist in the church 
why would you not devote yourself to the Word of God? Chew on that for a little bit. These false teachers live, they walk this lifestyle of deception and are found inside of the church. You, Christian, why would you not devote yourself to the reading of God's Word? Yes, I want you to grow in your faith. I want you to mature in your faith, but I also want you to protect yourself. I want you to protect your heart. I want you to protect your family, and I want you to protect one another. Our lives preach a sermon about what we believe about Jesus. Our lives the way in which we walk, our lives reveal our heart. Therefore, what does your lifestyle preach? Whether you're with someone or alone, what does it preach? Is your heart for your Savior or is it for yourself? Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of his day by calling them hypocrites who are filled with dead men's bones. Is that you? Is that you? Where you subscribe to Christian morality, you make a lot of noise, you even do the good things like give and attend Sunday, and you might even be a part of a group, but your, your life is void of Christ. That your heart is separated from God. That when it comes to the gospel, there is just no fire inside of you. That when you hear that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ, he lived the life that you and I cannot live, dies the death that you and I deserve to die, paying the penalty for our sin on our behalf with his blood and freely offers the grace of salvation that you and I cannot earn. That if we subscribe to this king, it has implications for our life. God judges the ungodly for their deception. And finally, God judges the ungodly for their deeds. We're going to uh, go straight to verse 16 to keep a flow. We'll come back to verses 14 and 15 in just a minute. <clears throat> but in these last three examples, Jude tells us the works, the deeds of those who are ungodly. So he's talked to us about their decisions. He's talked to us about their deception, a lifestyle of deception. Now he's telling us about their deeds. So here's what he says. Verse 16. These are grumblers. These individuals, these teachers, these false teachers, these false followers of Christ love to complain. 
Do you know how you can tell that someone is far from God or that they have, been be- that they have become hardened toward God? You want to know how you know? They complain. Elsewhere, Paul goes on to say, the apostle Paul goes on to say that complaining is actually one of the characteristics of someone who is far from God or hardened toward God. Jude writes that they are grumblers, that they are malcontents. So not only are they complaining, not only are they dissatisfied, but they are rebellious. Jude goes on to explain that they, quote, follow their sinful desires. Well, that means that they indulge in their sin, that they are driven by their impulses. And since verse 5, the context of pursuing their own passions, defiling the flesh, has been rooted in sexual immorality. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In short, they're narcissistic. They're narcissistic. They boast in themselves. They are self-centered. They are arrogant in their thinking. They show favoritism so that they would look a certain way to others, proclaiming, look at me, look at what I did. They are narcissistic. These teachers, these people lead the people of God astray. They are immature in their theology. They are experts in eloquent speech and they are masters of manipulation. And Jude tells us through the collected writings of Enoch, something familiar. Now we're going back to verses 14 and 15. Very quick side note in case you weren't here last week. Jude pulls from extra biblical non-inspired text in order to drive certain points. In addition to that, he is comfortable, it seems, using these references because these texts, these forms of Jewish literature were circulating at that time, so this would be familiar to the people he is writing to. It's not necessarily something foreign, and he's not dropping some random bomb on them. They are aware of what he is doing. Nevertheless, he uses the collected writings of Enoch to tell the church what will happen, what will come about to these people. And using Enoch, he says that the ungodly will be judged, condemned by the Lord Jesus at his second coming. Let's read it. Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to do what? To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The second coming of the Lord Jesus will be radically different than his first. I want you to listen once more. This isn't on your notes, but you can just listen. Listen once more to Danny Aiken on this, that when the Lord comes, or when the Lord returns, 
He, quote, comes to a crown, not a cross, a throne, not a cradle, to reign and not to die, to judge, not to be judged. The next time the Lord comes will be the last time he comes. Angels will be both his escort and his executioners. Listen to me. At the return of Christ for the ungodly, grace will be no more. Many like to soften the word of God. And those same teachers have not read Jude. God judges, and while Scripture teaches that he is slow to anger, at some point, someday, his anger will be righteously exercised. He will follow through with his vengeance. That is an unpopular topic to discuss at the dinner table. But it is a necessary topic to discuss. Many people reject this kind of the doctrine of judgment, let's say. Many people reject this. And those who do, oftentimes who are within the church, use phrases because of false teachers like, well, God understands me. Then you haven't read Jude. Oh, you'll hear things in music and in culture like only God can judge me. Theologically, that's, that's correct. That is, that is one truth but do you know what that actually means? One day, his grace will be no more for the ungodly. And so it leads us to, I suppose, the last question. What must we do? And in preparing this sermon, I must admit that it was somewhat difficult to come to a place of application. Because when you read 11 through 16, I don't know where the application is, so to speak, because what we learn about God through 11, in 11 through 16 is that He judges the ungodly for their decisions, their deceptions, and their deeds. And so I leave you with reminders, particularly if you belong to Christ, or let me say it this way, if you say you belong to Christ. And so the question is, what must we do? Just like the people at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where he is preaching Christ and Christ crucified, and he is pulling from the Old Testament, and they interrupt him and they say, brothers, what must we do? I would say that that should be our same question after reading 11 through 16. Here's what I would say. The first thing, Christian, examine yourself. This is taken directly from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I didn't ask you how many times you showed up on Sunday. I didn't even ask you how much you give. I didn't ask you if you host a missional community. I asked you to examine yourselves whether or not your heart has been 
regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you know Christ. And if you're not sure, ask a brother or sister. The next thing I would encourage you to do, humble yourselves. I want you to listen to God through David in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David knows about what to do. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of God making sacrifices and offering several different things to God. David knows, hey, I know what you don't want are the things that I should just do. Going to church on Sunday, going to my MC, getting plugged in with DG, giving, serving once every three months to say hi to someone I already know. David is saying, those are actually the things that you are good, but that's not what you delight in. And he tells us, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Humble yourselves. In humility, you will find vulnerability because you're completely exposed and you're completely exposed before the Lord. And finally, probably most importantly, confess and repent of your sin. I'll say a little bit on this and then we'll close. Those are two different things, church. Confession is when the charges are brought before us and we agree with those charges. You see it on shows all the time where the good cop needs to get a confession out of the bad guy. In other words, he needs him to agree with what he's accusing him of. Right? Some of you, awesome, that confession. Good job, guys. That does not mean you are repentant. Those are two different things. Confession is what God was asking Cain to do, put your heart on the table, put it all on there before me and with me. Repentance is turning away from that sin. There's an action, there's work, there's something to be done where we turn away from that sin and we rest and surrender and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 32 says this, For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. That word selah is an invitation to stop reading and start reflecting. Don't go on to the next thing. Stop right here. And he continues, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. If you belong to Jesus, confess and repent of your sin. 
put it on the table this morning. If we are to participate in the Lord's Supper together, then we are to come forward repentant, empty. And if you do not know the Lord, you can come to know Him today by confessing and repenting of your sin, surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. I promise you, He is ready to pardon any sinner who turns to Him in repentance and faith. Church, the same God who judges is the same God who by His mercy saves the ungodly. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are not immune to the characteristics and conduct of these false teachers. Whether it's now or at one point or another, sometimes we reflect who you are rebuking through Jude. Lord, we confess that we idolize one or two of your characteristics and ignore your sovereign and real judgment. God, and for those who belong to Christ, may this be a humble reminder of what Jesus has done for them through his redeeming work on the cross. And for those who do not know Christ, may this be a stark warning toward judgment and an invitation to repentance so that they would come to know Jesus. Lord, we confess our sin before you, putting our hearts on the table. 